Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Do you have big plans for the new year? Do you have big plans all of the time? Well, guess what? Squarespace makes it easy to turn those plans into a full-on website that lives on the internet. You can customize everything. You can use beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And there is nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. You can showcase your work, blog or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also a fire hose of microbes. Yeah, when I meet someone, I spray them with every germ I can as aggressively as I can. I am gross. And guess what? You do that, too. Today's guest is Ed Young. He is a science journalist for The Atlantic, and he is the author of I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us, and A Grander View of Life. That book is my favorite piece of nonfiction in a long time, so I thought we'd bring Ed on, because after I read him and got to sit down with him, I have a new understanding of all life on Earth, which is pretty exciting, including myself, because I am a person, yet I am primarily germs. I am full of trillions of microbes. And as people, we are low-key obsessed with our germs. We created antibiotics to kill bad ones. We created probiotic foods and drinks to bring good germs into our bodies. Also, I learned from Ed's book that there's no such thing as good or bad germs. We'll get into all that. We also learned from Cracked's own Jason Pargin a few weeks ago on this show that our politics spring from how we feel about microbes. And I've learned from being alive <laughs> that basically everyone devotes a chunk of their day to showering, washing hands scrubbing living spaces, and doing endless tasks that are specifically designed around germs. We spend our day dealing with our tiny creatures inside us. And that's kind of amazing because we only started learning about microbes at all recently in human history. The very, very earliest microscopes came around in the 1600s, and the science of what they do for us is kind of a work in progress. In relative scientific history terms, we just found out human bodies contain trillions of microbes and that every person aerosolizes 37 million bacteria per hour, and that if not for specialized microbes in the human gut, your body would not be able to digest plants into nutrients. And we're not the only microbed up creatures out there. The termites are extra microby. More than half of their body weight is actually protists, separate organisms that live inside termites and digest the wood they eat. We think of termites as loving to eat wood. If not for the microbes in them, they couldn't do it. Meanwhile, there's howler monkeys that have seasonally shifting gut microbes to help them eat different foods. There's mosquitoes that lose the ability to carry diseases like dengue fever if they gain specific microbes. And a stunning number of animals gain different microbes by eating poo. Cows, elephants, pandas, gorillas, rats, rabbits, dogs, iguanas, beetles, cockroaches, they're coprophages. They eat poo. And isn't that fascinating? Anyway, not only is the world germy, it's also a germ world that we're just beginning to understand, and on this episode this week, we're going to get into the way microbes affect everything from our nutrition, to our psychology, to our evolution, and I think we had a great time doing it, so it's time you heard it. Please sit back or gather your microbes around the fire, you know, with some micro hot cocoa and, and put them in micro sweaters. 
I'm thinking Norman Rockwell, but real small, you know? Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Ed Young. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined on the phone by Ed Young. We're so happy to have him. Thanks for coming on the show, Ed. Thanks for having me. There's many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, and also, I, I don't know if anyone's ever done this before, but I want to thank the trillions of you for coming on the show with the trillions of me and our many microbes. I <laughs> uh, really appreciate it. We are also uh, delighted to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're both the president of ourselves. Yeah, we can speak for right, right. <laughs> And your book is I Contain Multitudes. It's coming out in paperback very soon. For our listeners who haven't read it or haven't heard of it, I, I described it a bit in the intro, but what do you mean when you say that I contain multitudes or we contain multitudes? The line comes from a poem by Walt Whitman when he's talking about the, the many aspects of our personalities. Um, I'm using it in a slightly different way to talk about the um, trillions of bacteria and other microbes that share our bodies. Every person, even though they're individuals in their own right, is also um, an entire world. They're full of life. And um, even though we might think of microbes as germs, as agents of disease and decay, actually the vast majority of them are uh, benign or even beneficial. And they, they exist in our bodies in extreme numbers. These microbes, these multitudes inside us, aren't just sort of stowing away in our bodies. They are also um, really important for all sorts of aspects of our lives and our health. And that's what I Contain Multitudes is about. It's about the microbes that share the lives and the bodies of uh, humans um, and of every other animal. And the, the amazing relationships that we share with these creatures that we are barely aware of. Sure, yeah. I am really excited by a lot of things about the book, especially how much I find out, oh, there are so many processes going on that I had no idea were even happening, including in my own body. When you say when you say extreme numbers of microbes in a person, is there any approximate number of how many microbes are in one human? Like if our listener at home is like, how many folks am I carrying? What would the, the approximate number be? Right. So it's, it's in the tens of trillions. It actually varies quite a lot from person to person and like throughout the course of the day. Um, but we're to, you're talking about tens of trillions and there's actually roughly one of these microbial cells for each of our own human cells. So each of us really is, about, is only half the person we think we are. As I said, um, these, these microbes are um, present in, in these extraordinary numbers, but they're also really, really important for us. When you say it varies throughout the day, what changes that? <laughs> well, if you poop, for example, you lose a lot of them because most of them live in the gut. I mean, they live uh, in, in all different parts of the body, but the gut is home to the largest concentration of them. So depending on what you're doing with your gut, um, you, the numbers of microbes inside you will vary over the course of the day. Now I feel like I want to hang on to them. They sound so important. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah in particular, uh, there's all kinds of microbes that come up in the book that are important to the human body. The gut seems particularly fascinating. And as far as I can tell, it's particularly recent, too, that we're realizing how many different communities we contain there and also how much that varies from person to person, right? I guess so. I mean, in many ways, this is an, an old area of science. We've known that the human gut contains all of these uh, microbes for you know almost a century now. 
it's only really recently that we've had the technology to properly analyze just how diverse that community is to work out exactly which microbes are present there, um, how they interact with each other, how they interact with us. I think um, it's clear now that, that the microbes in our gut help to, for example, um, train our immune systems to digest our food, to maybe even affect our, our moods and our thoughts. And the, the sheer intimacy of those relationships um, has, I think, only really become clear in the last decade or so. So in many ways, this is very much like an, an infant science. You know, we're only really on the, on the start of understanding just how diverse these communities are and then all the um, incredible things that they help uh, to do for us. It's really neat that it's so new, at least, at least knowing the specifics of it. As far as the team in our gut, what's a particularly helpful microbe? You, you mentioned that they help the immune system. If, if I was Stephen Colbert's character on the Colbert Report, I would ask which microbes are patriots, you know, like which, which <laughs> microbes are, are working for us and on Team Humanity. I think it's not right to to single out any one protagonist. You know, it's not like a, it's not like there are uh, particular heroes. There are probably large oh. numbers, like large groups that are doing all sorts of different things. So there are those that, for example, um, help to influence the immune system. So they they make us um, reactive to infectious threats, but they also tamp down the immune system so that we don't overreact to harmless things or in the world around us, and then develop things like allergies or autoimmune disease. There are loads that help us to. To um, digest our food. Um, there's one I'm particularly fond of called a uh, bee infantis, which is very common in the guts of some infants that are breastfed. And it's very common there because about 10% of breast milk consists of these sugars that are very difficult for babies to digest. Um, and instead, those sugars are there not to nourish babies, but to nourish this particular microbe, um, which is found in the guts of infants and has evolved the ability to digest those sugars in breast milk with extreme efficiency. And when it does that, it releases other nutrients that then nourish the baby's gut cells. It um, seals up the lining of the gut. It reduces inflammation. So, you know, in, in many ways, a breastfeeding mother is not just feeding her baby. She's also feeding this microbe that produces all sorts of beneficial effects for the kid. That's so cool. There's one part of the book where it talks about human milk oligosaccharides, if I'm saying that right. Is that that kind right, of yeah. substance? Yes, those are the sugars that I'm talking about, the ones that the babies cannot digest and that are there to nourish the microbes inside the baby's gut. Yeah, because also I think the book says there are over 200 different kinds of them in human milk. It's five times more types than cow milk and 100 times more quantity. It's even more than chimp milk. Are we, are we a uniquely effective species at milk? Are we amazing at it as people? Every mammal has um, milk that is just beautifully suited to its own needs. Um, so it's not like yeah. our milk is like supercharged. Uh, it seems to have this very co-evolved relationship with the microbes in our guts. And I think for reasons, again, that we're only really starting to understand. Sure, yeah. As far as this being a new science, or at least a science that's been a long time coming, there's some really great narrative in this book about the earliest people doing it and also the current people. It goes back to Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, Leeuwenhoek. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Who was sort of one of the first people to do microscopes and to even see these tiny creatures. And, and then also you talk about recent scientists who are making new discoveries about microbes 
and a lot of them uh, being people who were involved in clinical work to kill bacteria, like they were trying to fight disease mm-hmm, and they ended mm-hmm. up discovering good microbes. How often do people kind of accidentally find their way into this science? It seems like almost everybody in the field kind of got there circuitously. Yeah, and I think that's actually a very common theme in this line of research. Um, And one of the reasons why it took so long for it to become um, kind of big and fashionable Often it's people who are working on the periphery of biology who started understanding just how micro, how important microbes are, not just to humans, but to, but to other animals. Because the people who focused on microbes for the longest time were the people who just wanted to kill them, right? Because we saw them as germs. Um, and so microbiologists were looking for ways to um, destroy microbes in order to save lives. And the people who really understood that they are important and beneficial came from areas like, say, zoology or botany, you know, people, people who were looking at their own particular niche, their own particular area of uh, the life sciences and suddenly realized, wait, well, hang on, microbes are really important here too. You know, they're important in neuroscience, in immunology, in gastroenterology, like, or, or, and, and it took a long time for all of these people to then work together and to form these large communities. So now, you know, I've gone to microbiome conferences where scientists who would never really have been talking to each other like just a decade ago and now sort of mingling and exchanging ideas. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this blossoming, this, this renaissance in the field. That's really cool. I suppose also in some sense, every conference is a microbiome conference because I, I also learned from this book, we're all trading microbes with each other all of the time whenever we meet which is phenomenal. I, I, I'd never thought of meeting other people that way. You're right. Like whenever we meet someone new, we exchange microbes with them. Um, some of that, you know, not, not, a, not a lot of that exchange is permanent. It's not like we're permanently altering each other's microbes, but we, we do have that exchange. And I think it, it matters in the short term and it shows how interconnected we are by the microbial world. And one of my favorite studies that I think shows, shows this quite beautifully involves uh, roller derby players where they've shown that um, women who play roller derby um, are closer to each other microbiologically at the uh, at the end of a match, then uh, you know before or during, like they're they're co- the fact that they're constantly bumping each other into each other <laughs> and like hip checking and whatnot means that they're swapping microbes. And I think that's a the, a fascinating proof of concept that um, that we are indeed exchanging microbes all the time. I'm a big sports fan, and and I really enjoyed that study and hope they could do it everywhere because I almost want the result to be when two teams play each other in a sport, they end up biologically befriending each other. You know, like by the end of a hard fought game, they're really just buddies. Right. If I was a betting man, I would put money on that being true. I I think, you know, it's, it's true when we, when we shake hands and we spend time near each other, like, uh, like romantic couples have closer microbiomes than uh, roommates who share the same flat, and roommates have um, closer microbiomes than friends who don't live with each other. Okay, so I see. So you called into this interview to avoid my microbes. I see. I understand. That's no, right. it's fine. I, I'm I not offended. I mean, I just heard things about yours, and I think, you know, I, I'm better <laughs> off over here. <laughs> There's some other elements in the book about the science and theory of evolution. And it seems like this is it's particularly bleeding edge, this microbial aspect to it. But it seems like there's some evidence that microbes play a large part or maybe an essential part in the process of evolution itself. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, con consider the fact that many, many groups of animals would not have been able to take up the lifestyles that they currently do were it not for the microbes in their bodies. You know, this is a clear example of allowing animals to take evolutionary routes that would have been cut after them. So, for example, um, aphids and other sap-sucking bugs um, that, that annoy gardeners, um, they can only drink the sap of uh, plants because they have microbes in their bodies that provide them with um, nutrients that are missing from that diet of plant sap. And without those microbes, these insects would never have been able to exploit this incredibly rich and common source of food. And likewise, you know, mammals, um, so many mammals eat plants, so things like cows, sheep, goats, they are only able to digest the complex carbohydrates in plants because they have microbes to do that digestive well for them. So again, without the microbes inside, inside mammalian guts, um, you know, our order of animals would never have been able to become like the um, very successful, you know, grasslands uh, thriving creatures that uh, they currently are. Yeah, yeah, that's a particularly amazing thing to me, that idea that we're only omnivores or at least only able to eat plants because of bacteria inside of us that we have pretty much always taken for granted. That's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Like, who knew? In terms of, um, in terms of evolution, we, we often think of evolution as a very uh, slow process where you know, species will um, adapt to new challenges by gradually accumulating mutations in their genes and slowly, slowly changing their, their bodies and their biochemistry to uh, deal with the challenges that they face. But an alternative to that is just partnering with microbes in the environment that already have the right adaptations. Um, and there are many examples of this. You know, there are insects that become can become instantly resistant to insecticides if they swallow the right detoxifying microbes in the environment. And this is, it's basically the same as the, the process that Darwin envisaged. It's not really that different. It's just much, much faster. Sure, yeah. Also, one of my favorite things about this science of microbiomes and, and what we're all made of and all creatures are made of is that it takes a lot of things that we just sort of figure, well, it just must work and explains elements of it. And even mm -hmm. your book all the way go, goes all the way back to Alfred Russell Wallace, contemporary of Darwin, who was doing biogeography of Southeast Asia and Australia and trying to and figuring out, oh, it's very important that this ecosystem is in this place and then this totally different ecosystem is just across the water from it. And that must be right. as essential to understanding evolution as what the creatures are themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, back then, um, people like Darwin and Wallace were looking at life on Earth by sailing around the world and collecting samples with nets and forceps and jars and whatnot, um, you know, very old school natural history. Um, and now people who do natural history are, instead of doing all of that, um, just going to individuals and like swabbing bits of their bodies with Q-tips uh, or like cotton pads. That's a the sort of modern day naturalism because we natural history because we now understand that the vast majority of life on earth is microbial and we can find it through just taking samples
examples of the world around us. And then we see that, um, you know, the, the microbes that live in the human gut are very different than those living in, say, soil or water or other animals. We even see um, huge differences across our bodies. So the, the microbes that live um, in my mouth are very different to those living in my gut or my skin. And each of these organs is like a different island or a different continent, much like um, Darwin and Wallace would have seen when they sailed around the world. Support for today's show comes from our good friends at Squarespace, and they're good friends because you, the Crack Podcast listener, you generally tend to be awesome. We've used very, very, very large computers and data mining to discover that all of you are uh, geniuses, which is really neat, and you're up to so many different things. Why don't you show them off with a website? Maybe you're a brilliant writer. Maybe you're a brilliant artist. Maybe you're just someone who has a lot of cool ideas. You can put them online in your own way with a website from Squarespace, and hey, it's the new year. What a perfect time to get at it. Squarespace has it all. Beautiful templates created by world-class designers that let you showcase your work, blog or publish content, even sell products and services. Hey, there might be money in that. You can customize everything. It's optimized for mobile right out of the box. The same phone you might be listening to this podcast on, your website will look good on it. Isn't that great? There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade, and if you have a question about how it works, don't worry. Squarespace has a 24-7 customer support team to help you out. So what you waiting for? Head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code CRACKED. Support for today's show also comes from Casper. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time for people all over the world, including this fella right here, Schmitty the Clamp. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I myself spend sometimes more than one-third of my life sleeping. I'm very lazy. However, it's really, really great to sleep on a Casper mattress. They sent it in a box that was very surprisingly small. I thought it was just a lot of books or something. It turned out to be a pretty lightweight, pretty compact, pretty amazing box with a Casper mattress in it. And it's the most comfortable sleep experience I've ever had. That's why I sound so rested. If you want to be like me, if you want to start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper, go get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using cracked at checkout. That is casper.com slash cracked, offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase. Just keep putting cracked into the computer. You'll get there. Terms and conditions apply. As far as the communities of microbes within us, how much are they driving our decisions and our actions? And I think as people, we have we often have a very strong sense in our heads of self and of, oh, I am a person right. who has decided everything about my life. And here we go. We've done a lot of things on crack, not just about 
generally not about uh, microbes, but about just human psychology, where decisions we make are really driven by underlying decisions. How many of our decisions are driven by our bacteria? So what we know is that when you look at animal studies with uh, rodents, so rats and mice, you see that um, the microbes in their gut can influence things like their mood, uh, their um, susceptibility to anxiety, how vulnerable, how well they cope with stress. Um, maybe even aspects of their personality. We know um, that there are parasites that can influence the, the behavior uh, and the, the, the decisions of their hosts. So it stands to reason that the same kind of dynamics apply to humans as well. Um, there, there haven't been a lot of studies on how um, gut microbes uh, or microbes at all influence the uh, moods uh, and, uh, and emotions and thoughts uh, of people. But I think it's very reasonable to think that such influences are at work. Now, does this mean that free will doesn't apply? I, I don't think it does. I think it means that... Um, it, it does have you know, unsettling connotations because it does mean that these little tiny organisms that you know, don't have brains or minds of their own are influencing the way we think and behave. But you know, I don't see it as any differently to say things like ideas or you know, advertising. We're surrounded by things that influence the way we think and the way we behave in ways that aren't driven by ourselves, you know, and in ways that we're not really conscious of. And, and this is just another uh, kind of biological example of that. But, you know, I, I think it does kind of knock us down a peg or two by showing that even our like vaunted intellects um, <laughs> can be deeply influenced by things that have no brains at all. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps us humble. I like it. Right. Yeah, I'm sure you know more about the studies covering or the existing studies that have looked at how much do bacteria affect our personalities. There's um, there's a cracked article called Four Creepy Things That Secretly Control Your Personality by uh -huh. Jason Pargin, who writes for the site, David Wong. And he he does say one study from Ohio State University in 2015, and it suggested that kids with more genetically diverse gut bacteria exhibited more positive mood, more curiosity, more sociability, and also more impulsivity. I know the title of the article puts a value judgment on it, but not to put a value judgment on it. It's just an interesting, I guess, frontier that we can start to look at the communities inside of us and say, oh, that's a whole aspect of my personality as a person. True, but I would like sound a little note of caution. Like a lot of these studies have two important things which we should be wary of one is that they tend to be very small so sure. you know this as i said this field is is in its early days so you know we want to be really careful about drawing like firm conclusions from them um and they're they're all correlative right so in in that example it's not clear whether it's the microbes that are driving those personality differences you could very equally argue that um kids with different uh, person with different personalities might be more or less likely to have exposure to microbes whether it's through contact with others or to the environment or you know, all, all sorts of things so you know this is sure. a this is probably one of the the defining um, problems in the field now that as I said it's in early days it's using it uses a lot of new technology and so people run a lot of small correlative studies where it's difficult to draw firm conclusions but we do end up with a lot of like articles you know so drawing causal inferences when it's really not clear what what direction um, that those influences are working in.
Yeah, of course. And you're an expert and a, a successful professional in science writing. And the book mentions the overselling the microbiome award, which someone gave yeah, out for right. an article that overstated what microbes do, or at least what we know about what microbes do. What should what should science writing and science writers be doing with this material? Uh, obviously, you're an example of doing it well, but what's what are some good practices as far as uh, not over or underselling what our bacteria are doing for us? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so, so I feel that partly it comes down to being very aware of those things I just said about the inconclusive nature of small studies, of, of the, um, the fact that um, so much of this field is correlative, and then just um, you know, trying hard to, to not to not oversell, you know, the, the microbiome has been linked to pretty much every health condition under the sun now, um, but often through those kinds of small quality studies. So like partly it's about making choices about what to cover. Like, am I really going to write a new story about this thing, which um, may or may not be true? Um, right. When I try and write st uh, stuff about the microbiome, both in the book and in my regular work at The Atlantic, you know, I try and look at studies that I think have something interesting to say beyond just like, oh, maybe the microbiome is linked to disease X, you know, the, the disease of the day, um, and maybe have some insights into like the way the field is progressing, some new techniques, some new insight into, into exactly how microbes are influencing our lives. I think that will take us much further than just sort of compiling yet another entry in this growing list of things that the microbiome may or may not be related to. Yeah, that sounds great. I suppose with all science writing, but especially with this, it's writing a story about a story that's incomplete. Like we don't know where any of it goes because it's all a process. And so we are covering it as it happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Well, and also I feel like uh, the world of business is maybe maybe less cautious than, than uh, the world of science as far as expressing what microbiomes do for us. In the book, you talk about Various things companies are doing right or wrong with uh, selling a product that's probiotic, has a lot of microbes in it for us. What are some good good practices that companies are doing and, and maybe some that aren't so good? <laughs> um, I actually have nothing to say in terms of good practices at the moment. I really do think that the probiotics market is just massively overhyped. Um, it, it, you know, in, in almost every dimension, like most of these products just don't do any good other than um, possibly being good for treating some kinds of um, infectious diarrhea. Um, in the main, probiotics just don't live up to the hype right. um, that's around them. And that, you know, we see that in very good scientific reviews. We see that in judgments passed down by uh, regulators. There are good reasons for that. Um, the, the bacteria in these products were chosen not because they're actually very good at uh, living in the body or because they do much in the way for, for our health, but just because they were easy to sort of manufacture and, and grow and package into these products. Like now, researchers are trying to find ways of making better probiotics by looking for strains and species that actually are suited to life inside us and that might do some good. Um, but, you know, again, this is a this is very much a work in progress. And uh, there is a, a huge amount of hype about what these products can or, or cannot do. I should have set this up earlier. These products are things like yogurt and uh, pills, I suppose. Is that sort of, That's sort of the main range of probiotic products, right? Right, right. I mean, they come in many forms. For what it's worth, I, I'll say that there aren't really any massive safety issues 
it's not like people are, you know, causing harm to themselves. I would just be very cautious about um, taking these products in the expectation of some massive health boon. Um, right. You know, I eat a lot of yogurt, but I eat that. I do that because I like the taste of yogurt, not because I'm I'm expected to become like miraculously healthy because of it. Like, <laughs> I think we still just don't really know enough um, about this world and about exactly how these microbes work in order to, to, to be able to manipulate our relationship with them in any sort of precise or effective way. Concerning microbes, but also just in general, have we ever truly understood human nutrition yet? I feel like as a society, we are still trying to figure out exactly what the best thing for us is. Like at, at Cracked, we were at one point considering doing a feature, and we've done sort of one-off versions of it where we take the latest sort of splashy internet news story about whether, say, eggs are good for you or not, and then just stack it up against the last four and just show how, you know, the media or even one outlet will say, eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, eggs are good for you, eggs are bad for you, like, oh, for a very short period of time. It seems yeah, like sure. between our, our limited understanding of microbes and also our general understanding of ourselves, nutrition is like still unexplored? We're still figuring it out? That's uh, crazy. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, there are people doing good work uh, on this. Um, there are folks uh, in Israel in particular doing work on trying to look at how the microbiome um, affects your personal response to the food you eat and maybe trying to make predictions about what might be um, healthy or good for a particular individual given a lot of their you know, physical characteristics, maybe even their genes and certainly the microbes inside them. And I think that's probably where the, the field of nutrition needs to go to understand that there are you know, these broad population-wide recommendations are unlikely, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to be very granular um, at that scale. You know, it's, it's very easy to say things like you should eat more fiber, and that's probably true across the entire population. But when it, when it comes to like what you or I should eat um, and what we need to maintain a healthy weight or a healthy microbiome, you know, there's going to be so much variation there. And I think we need to, the only way out of this confusion is to really grapple properly with that individual variation. And, and in terms of individualizing things, the book also sort of describes a way, I shouldn't say sort of, it does describe a way the future of medicine could go where it's personalized based on our particular microbes, which would be amazing. Right. Um, so we know that um, people's reaction to uh, all kinds of medicines uh, from, you know, really simple things like acetaminophen to uh, complex things like cancer drugs um, really vary depending on the microbes they have inside them. So sometimes these bugs will uh, break down medicines so they're not effective anymore. Sometimes they will uh, convert the chemicals into um, stuff with nasty side effects. So yeah, I think it's it's probably uh, fair to predict that in the short term, doctors would be able to look at your microbiome and say, okay, you should receive this medicine. This one probably won't work so well. This one is going to make you feel terrible. And it's, use the microbiome as a way of stratifying and personalizing um, which drugs uh, a person should get. I would love any kind of personalized thing like that. I would just feel very important too, you know, in, in addition to the <laughs> right, benefits. Right. Sounds great. There's, I think, a lot of general media coverage of 
antibiotics and super bacteria. The book really goes in depth in a great way as far as what we may or may not be doing to diseases by giving ourselves antibiotics. And also your work in The Atlantic, you did a recent article stopping the rise of superbugs by making them fight for food, which is a fascinating story on its own. The first line is, the Mm -hmm. history of antibiotics is a history of running in place. What happens when mm-hmm. the germs mm-hmm. catch up to us? Like, what, uh, what do we do practically? I mean, so this is the really big question, right? Like, uh, antibiotic resistance is a massive problem. Um, bacteria almost always evolve ways of um, circumventing the drugs we use to kill them. That's been true since the very beginning, since um, penicillin, the first synthetic antibiotic, was discovered. Um, and now we're in a horrible position where um, uh, a lot of diseases that were once thought to be um, you know, on the verge of becoming historical threats, things like gonorrhea, are, are now bouncing back because there are so many strains that can resist the drugs that we use to treat them. The nightmare scenario is we get back to a place like we we had before the rise of antibiotics, where um, you know surgeries were really risky procedures, um, where you could get a scratch or a cut and get a life-threatening infection, where um, things like cancer chemotherapies or or plastic surgeries or all sorts of operations would become very difficult. Um, And we're in that tough position, not just because of the rise of antibiotic resistant uh, microbes, but because the drugs that we do have are not working well anymore. And because the pipeline has dried up. So there have been almost no new classes of antibiotics discovered uh, in the last couple of decades. And there are very few good candidates coming up. You know, our weapons are becoming obsolete and there are a few new ones on the horizon. Um, And that's, you know, tremendously worrying. I I think there are many ways around this problem. Partly it's about good stewardship of the drugs we already have. So making sure that doctors aren't prescribing them for um, stupid reasons like uh, for for colds, um, like viral infections that they aren't actually meant to treat. Uh, to reduce the use of antibiotics in agriculture. Um, They are used to to make animals bulk up, and that's creating the the selection pressures for for drug resistance for reasons that aren't about saving people's lives. And then we need to find new drugs. There's currently no um, market incentive for pharmaceutical companies to invest in the very expensive process of doing this. Um, so there are there is talk about um, governments around the world uh, sort of stepping in, you know, with the, um, the the public sector helping by creating those incentives and creating large funds to spur R&D into uh, new antibiotics. And then there are lots of different strategies about how we might be able to stop the rise of antibiotic resistant bacteria in the first place, including you know, like using viruses that infect the microbes. Um, the, the article you talked about where you sort of try and make the bacteria compete for resources that they need and, and mm-hmm. to put the resistant strains at a disadvantage. There's lots of ways we could potentially approach this problem, but you know, whatever the case, um, I think it's very clear that it is a significant problem and one that requires a lot of uh, care and attention. I'd like to think it's a hopeful situation, especially like there's a great line in your book where you say that antibiotics are like nuking a city to deal with a rat in certain situations. And so if they're if they're that, I guess you'd call it ham-fisted of an approach, it's exciting that the other approaches are probably more exact and more specific. Yes, uh, yeah. ho- hopefully so. Um, that that would be a, a sort of nice, uh, nice, nice side effect too. I mean, the 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 issue that's separate to uh, drug resistant infections is that um, you know antibiotics also 
destroys some of the microbes that we care about are the ones that help us. So, you know, something that um, being more judicious in the use of antibiotics uh, will not only help to uh, reduce the prevalence of resistance, but also help to spare the, the microbiome too. Right, right. There's a lot of sort of sub through lines in the book. And, and one other that I, I think I would like to feel, feel excited about is the overall uh-huh. state of the oceans. There's a lot of amazing stuff about coral reefs and about uh, how many of them have gone away very recently. Are we going to have ocean life in the future? Is that something that we'll get to uh, enjoy? It's really hard to predict. Um, The oceans are are in a bad way. um, And uh, it does make me and other people who care about them uh, a bit depressed. But You know, I I think there are people who are also hopeful and optimistic. And there are many people, for example, who are looking at the microbes in coral reefs as ways of potentially uh, saving them, of of sort of pairing up corals with microbes that um, make them hardier or more durable as a way of sort of uh, helping them to um, stay the course in this time of intense climate change, which has led to so much destruction of coral reefs around the world. Um, So, you know, this is, I think this is just one part of that bigger story, but um, this is one area in which I think the microbiome is being channeled uh, towards something very practical and something that I think may save lives, Uh, not necessarily human lives, but lives all the same. In the book, in a few cases, I think the microbiome gets described as being sort of like a thermostat where the key is not way more or way less of something, it's finding the right balance. And you describe a state of dysbiosis in reefs where they become black reefs. That sounds, uh, I've never seen one, but it sounds terrifying. Right. So black reefs are what happens when um, iron, uh, some some rich deposit of iron uh, lands in a coral reef. Uh, The iron disrupts the balance uh, of competition between corals uh, and uh, algae. Uh, The algae overgrow. uh, They lead to um, changes in the coral's microbiome, a rise in species that that are more likely to cause disease. Uh, And this cycle of of change leads to uh, the the collapse of these reefs and and kind of a a blackening of them. So yeah, there there are many ways in which coral reefs can die. (laughs) And a change in their community of microbes for all sorts of reasons, including kind of unexpected causes like overfishing. That's part of why they can become so vulnerable. There's an anecdote in the book about uh, an area called the Lion Islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and how a lot of the coral reefs, uh, because of human activity changing the microbes, a lot of the reefs have gone away. And then one exception is areas around Christmas Island where there was nuclear testing. And so people are afraid to go there and the reef is doing great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think um, corals, much like us, are large communities of living things and that exist in partnership. And, and we know we don't really understand them or ways to save them without understanding those partnerships. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Ed Young for taking the time and just being charming as all heck. He's great. And let's go on into our footnotes where you will find Ed's book, I Contain Multitudes. It's out in paperback January 16th. If you're listening right when this drops, that is tomorrow. If you're listening after that, hey, you already got it. Great. We're also linking a lot of Ed's science writing for The Atlantic, where he covers just about everything. It's kind of amazing. He also has a YouTube show, and he has a newsletter. I'm not the only guy with fun YouTube videos and newsletters, folks. He's got it, too. Follow Ed. He's great. 
Also, further footnotes will take you to Cracked Articles by Jason Pargen and by David Huntsberger, who you've heard on this show before. He's also great. And they're all about the microbes in your life. We're also going to link the recent microby episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason, where germs get political. Really fun. We're also going to link to Wolbachia pipientis. That is a name I'm almost definitely pronouncing wrong. It's kind of my thing. Wolbachia pipientis is Ed Yong's favorite bacterium. Once you study this stuff enough, you pick up some interesting favorites, and it's a really cool thing. It changes the genders of species that it's in, at, at least as far as how breeding works. Click the link. You'll find out all about it. Also want to thank everybody who came out to our live episode this past weekend. The next one is going to be Saturday, February 10th at 7 p.m. at UCB Sunset in L.A. So more info on that February 10th show soon. If you want to mark it in your calendar right now, hey, you're ahead of the curve. Good job, you and your microbes who maybe are involved. Anyway, as far as this show goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that is great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. The only place on Earth with a bunch of germ-free people, because those people are bots. You can find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcasts. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.